time and not have uh, a piece of bad news to to uh, to discuss with you. But it just underscores the point that this bill, this Justice for George Floyd uh, Policing Act, is low-hanging fruit. It's the minimum that we could actually achieve jointly, and it is still imperiled. It, it really is the minimum that we can do, and I was proud to pass it uh, with other House Democrats a few months ago. Uh, it would, having said that, be transformative. As you know, it would end qualified immunity for law enforcement. Uh, it would ban chokeholds and no-knock warrants of the kind that uh, led to the murder of Breonna Taylor. And, of course, it would create a national police registry for officers engaging in misconduct. And so we must pass this legislation. I'm fine with it taking a little bit longer than the anniversary of George Floyd's murder if we're going to get it right. And I have the utmost faith in the leadership and negotiating skills of Congresswoman Karen Bass. Let's talk about... Uh... Uh, the, the the senators on the other side, uh, there there is this concern about qualified immunity. What you just talked about the, the the restriction on being able to sue police officers for potential wrongdoing in the course of their duties. It is something that Republicans have generally said they are not interested in touching. It is something that the police unions do not want them to touch. The other stuff is good and serious, but but ultimately that is the one that matters to a lot of people, and that's the thing that rumor says is on the negotiating table. It's unfortunate that it's on the negotiating table. Uh, as you may know, this is a doctrine that was created out of thin air by the Supreme Court of the United States. Uh, and it is a doctrine that effectively allows law enforcement agents uh, to evade responsibility, even when it has been demonstrated that they have violated the constitutional rights of civilians. Uh, I, I know that there have been a variety of proposals floated with respect to qualified immunity, uh, various uh, versions of what reforming qualified immunity would look like. Uh, and I'm awaiting to see what the final proposal will be. But I've got to tell you, I cannot imagine it passing in the House of Representatives without addressing the issue of qualified immunity. If it doesn't have qualified immunity in it, but it's still an advance over what we have now, would you support it? I, I cannot imagine myself voting for something that does not address qualified immunity. It is what is going to deter officers in a meaningful way from engaging in the misconduct that uh, is on the public conscience right, right now. And thank God this bill is popular with the American people. We should not be having to negotiate. We should be uh, abolishing, really, the filibuster to get this through. And at a minimum, we should be reforming it so that we can pass the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act intact as it was passed by House Democrats and as it is preferred by the American people and as racial justice requires in the United States of America. Wait, before you scroll away, Democratic headquarters urgently needs you to sign this petition to protect voting rights before the deadline closes. There's a piece that I haven't played from that interview yet, and it's got to do with the the personal trauma, something that, that conservatives mocked uh, Representative Ocasio-Cortez for. She's not past it. I think it, it fascinates her that, that those 175 Republicans are past it because they were coming for all of them. Look, Ali, it's, thank you for having me on. It's great to see you, too. Uh, I 
was not expecting that the conversation about January 6th, because the interview happened a couple of weeks ago. I just didn't think that that was where we were going to spend so much time. You know, you have a limited amount of time and a lot to cover. But as somebody who knows trauma, I developed PTSD when I was working at CNN covering 9-11. I didn't know what the heck it was. And it's a very strange thing. And I'm so glad that I was able to get over it after many, many years and a lot of therapy. And I could see this on, on Alexandria's face so clearly that she needed to speak about this. And, and what's hard about it, Ali, is that it's there. This is, you can see it on her face. Of course, when we are presenting, we all can put on makeup and look great. But when you're close mm-hmm. up to somebody and the mask is off, literally the mask is off, there's the trauma. And what's extraordinary, Ali, is that just me talking about this on my Twitter and putting the interview up, all of the trolls come. And this is where it's like, wow, you know, she can't even she can't even have her feelings. And yet what I'm proud of her for and, you know, I'm always skeptical of politicians. So, yes. But what I'm proud of her for is that she still remains authentic in that in that way. Uh, in fact, so much so that I want to play uh, some of what she said to you about her, her own feelings of wellness after January 6th. Let's listen together. If I take a couple months now and just be really good, then I don't have to live with this thing festering and lingering with me like a roommate in my apartment <laughs> for years. So you're doing therapy? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I'm doing therapy, but also I've just slowed down. I think the Trump administration had a lot of us, especially Latino communities, in a very reactive mode. And so I've been putting myself in a more proactive space. Let's just talk about that. The, the uh, Trump had uh, a number of people in Latino communities in a very uh, reactive mode. This is something you know a great deal about, you report on, um, and you talk to people. Uh, it, it, it's scary when the president targets a group of people. Uh, we've seen it now with Asian Americans in, in the last year. It, it does have real effect. Oh, my God. It's exhausting, Ali. It's completely exhausting. The full interview, and this was a place where Alexandria actually was able to talk about Latinos and Latinas. And and it's not just for Latinos and Latinas, but considering that we are the second largest voting bloc in the United States, and she's not just a Latina politician, she's one of the most fascinating American politicians right now in the United States. Um, The way she talked about uh, uh, the future, um, it was, was extraordinary. I mean, it, we have to understand that Latinos and Latinas are going to, she understands that what, what they do, how they act politically is going to determine what the future of the United States looks like. But at the same time, it was like a roadmap, the way she was talking about what young Latinos, you know, I'm, I'm a bit older now, and so I don't have a lot of time to, to figure this out. But the interview was really for her giving a roadmap to Latinos and Latinas to understand that we have a lot of work to do to understand who we are in this country and our history and taking the, the cue from Black Lives Matter, from the activists historically in this country who have said, we have to study our own history. We have to, we have to affirm ourselves. And this is what Alexandria is talking about. But at the same time, I'm so happy that she talks about healing, that she talks about therapy, that she talks about going into the woods, doing green therapy, ancestral therapy, getting in touch with her indigeneity. These are all things that also are part of a roadmap for many Latinos and Latinas, and we need it.
just got the amazing Kizzy Corbett. The Harvard School of Public Health announced that starting next month, Dr. Kizmikia Corbett, who helped create the Moderna vaccine for COVID-19, quote, will head the new coronaviruses and other relevant emerging infectious diseases lab to study and understand the interface between hosts, immune systems, and viruses that cause respiratory disease with the goal of informing development of a novel and potentially universal vaccines. Dr. Corbett has already saved hundreds of millions of lives with the Moderna vaccine, and today she showed up in person at a Walgreens in Virginia to save two more. And we were there to record this conversation earlier today. Joining us now, Dr. Kizzy Corbett, Matthew Mallory, and Matthew's mother, Dr. Joan Cephas, who is a doctor of educational psychology, joining us from Walgreens. Uh, Kizzy, this is a very, very exciting day. Uh, I, I really wasn't sure this was going to happen. What's it like for you? You're vaccinating America one shot at a time, and this was a big conversion for you. You know, every single time someone decides to be vaccinated, it is extremely exciting for me. I will never get tired of hearing that people have made the choice to be vaccinated. And moreover, whenever my voice can be the beacon of that change, I am so happy. I'm thankful for Matthew and his mom for coming out today. And of course, I was so thrilled to come all the way to Virginia to make sure that it happened. Matthew, how do you feel? Oh, yeah. good, sir. So, I, you know, uh, Kizzy obviously chased you down in the theater uh, right after the town hall. Uh, I was following. And, and you know, I, and you and I were out on the sidewalk afterwards. And, and on our final exchange, you told me that you don't like needles. And, you know, I, I used to not like needles either. But I told you that I did not even feel it when I got my Moderna injection and I know there was no reason for you to believe me so how did it feel for you when you actually you don't like needles but you got the needle today how did that feel oh it felt good I mean like, like just I, I, I felt same thing I didn't feel anything at all uh, it was over and done with before I even know it yeah that's that was my experience with it uh, and uh, Dr. Cephas uh, what, what did you experience in getting the vaccine today um, it was very easy for me. I didn't feel the needle at all. It went by very quickly. So, uh, Dr. Cephas, I have a question for you about Dr. Corbett. And you are a doctor of educational psychology. So please rate for me the educational psychology that Dr. Corbett used on your son <laughs> and you to get you into that Walgreens today. <laughs> well, I looked at the town hall meeting, and I was very impressed with the information that was being shared by um, Dr. Corbett. And after talking to my son, Matthew, after the show, um, that was what really inspired me to go ahead and get the vaccine. Now, Dr. Cephas, we uh, 
Kizzy and I know about Matthew's reluctance. Why were you reluctant or why did you take this long to get the vaccine? Um, I, w I was listening to some of the conspiracy theories and just not really for sure the effectiveness of the vaccine. Um, so after I got more information, became more educated, and Dr. Corbett really inspired me um, to get the vaccine. Now, you just uh, listened to Dr. Corbett on the town hall, and then today when you met her at Walgreens, that's the first time you've had a chance to, to talk to her beyond what you heard on the town hall. Isn't that right? That's correct. Yeah. And, and so would you say Dr. Corbett was the key to convincing you to get this vaccine? Um, she, there is, yes, Dr. Corbett was the key because she was the key that convinced my son to get it. So it was like a, a snowball effect. She convinced my son to get it and it snowballed to me for me to get it. Kizzy, what have you learned about reluctance? Um, and have you learned anything new about reluctance in talking to Matthew uh, and his mother? You know, Lawrence, one of the things that I found in the last, I guess you could say, six months, as I've talked to people all over the country, mostly virtually, around their reluctance or inquisitiveness with this vaccine, is that you really do need that person that's going to chase you down after a town hall <laughs> to make sure that your questions are answered. And that is what I feel like my purpose is with Matthew and his mother and beyond, actually. Um, it is very important for us to make sure again and again that we listen to people and that we leave no question unanswered regarding their questions around the vaccine. Matthew, uh, when you went home from the town hall, uh, what did you tell your mother about it? How did, how did the two of you discuss this? Uh, we talked about, you know, how was the, my experience was going to the town hall um, I'd let her know that I got a lot of information about the vaccine, uh, and which, you know, kind of pushed me over the edge of going, going, going ahead and say, yes, I'm going to go ahead and do it. And uh, Dr. Cephas, was there anything uh, in particular that uh, that Matthew said that uh, that drew you closer to this decision? Um, as we discussed uh, what happened at the town hall and the information that he gathered from attending the town hall. Um, we talked about how we had the, we like to travel and that one of my motivating factors in getting the vaccine was that I love to travel and it became very evident to me that in order to travel, it's almost be mandated to get the vaccine. So that was a motivating factor and that's how we came to the decision. And I shared with Matthew that if he get the vaccine, I would get the vaccine. We would do it as a pair. How easy or difficult was it to find an appointment to get the vaccine? The appointment was very easy. Uh, I was able to come down to my local pharmacy, uh, give them my information, um, and they were able to uh, give me, educate me how everything would go. It was very easy. And Kizzy, how much difference does it make in your experience, the degree of difficulty in making the appointment it makes so much of a difference you know i'm from rural north carolina so i understand what accessibility to getting vaccinated looks like and it is so helpful that there are about twenty thousand pharmacies around the country that are now taking walk-in appointments 
People can look up their local pharmacies on vaccines.gov. And, you know, about 90% of people in this country live within five miles of their local pharmacy to get the vaccine. And so as accessibility becomes easier, we hope to get more people vaccinated. Matthew, uh, six weeks from now, you are free to travel and safely. Uh, Four weeks from now, you'll get your second shot. Two weeks after that, you're considered fully vaccinated. Where do you want to go uh, when, if you can travel in six weeks? <laughs> well, actually, I already have a trip planned. Uh, I'm planning to go to Jamaica. Oh, and uh, Dr. Corbett, I think you have a family relationship with Jamaica. I do. I do. I do. My brother-in-law is uh, from Jamaica. So I'm very excited that Matthew is going to be able to experience Jamaica. And I've, I've told him that I'm going to hop in his suitcase because I need a break. <laughs> Kizzy Corbett's a part of your life now. So, so uh, Matthew, yes, what, would you want, what, what do you want to say to, to Kizzy today? She worked years and years to develop this vaccine. Uh, she worked very hard. Uh, uh, more than overtime, uh, when COVID-19 hit, figuring out exactly how to build the vaccine that you got today, the Moderna vaccine. Uh, what do you want to say to her about the work she's done? I want to say thank you. Oh. You know, you very much appreciate it. You know, your hard work and efforts are definitely paying off. Um, you're saving the world. Thank you. Thank you for being vaccinated. <laughs> that, that, that's, that's really it, right? There is, I could have made a vaccine, and then if no one took it, then it wouldn't even matter. And so it's really, at this point, the duty is on the people who are being vaccinated. So thank you. Kizzy, uh, what would you like to ask uh, Matthew and Joan at this point in their experience? You know, I just I just want to in the same way that you got your information and you transfer that to your mom. I just want to make sure that if people ask you questions about the vaccine, Mm -hmm. that you are transparent and that you're honest and that you remind people of all the information that you got that day in the town hall so that we can keep this snowball effect rolling and continue to get people vaccinated in the same way. Matthew, what are you going to tell your friends and family if they're wondering about getting the vaccine? (laughs) <laughs> go ahead and get it done it's not that bad <laughs> go ahead and get it done it's not that bad not that bad that's the that's the review so far uh, Matthew Mallory I cannot thank you enough first of all for coming to the town hall you've been a great lesson for so many millions of people now uh, Dr. Joan Cephas Matthew's mother thank you very much for joining him today And Dr. Kizzy Corbett, we will never, ever be able to thank you enough, but I'm going to thank you once again for joining us and doing this today. Dr. Kizzy Corbett, thank you very much. Thank you all. We really appreciate this. This has been a great day. Thank you very much. Thank Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Georgia law got a lot of attention on the issue of being able to give uh, voters water while they're waiting in line. Uh, But the provision that seems ultimately possibly the scariest of all is what it does 
in terms of empowering the Georgia legislature uh, in election, in dealing with election results. What can you tell us about what the Georgia law does in changing the aftermath of voting and how the legislature might or might not be able to interfere with the count? Part of the effectiveness of voter suppression is that it doesn't aim at a single target. It tries to dismantle or weaken the entirety of the system. And so, yes, no water because people are going to be standing in line for seven or eight hours and might just give up and go home. But if they make it through the gauntlet, they get their ballots cast, they get those ballots counted. On the other side, the Republicans have said to themselves, we may not like the outcome, so we're going to wrest away the power that we have invested in our election workers, people who are putting their time and their talent and their lives on the line sometimes. And we're going to say that they can be overturned by the act of state legislators who don't like the outcome. When you do that, what you are saying is that it's not worth knowing what the outcome will be because they're going to rig the outcome that they want. What they will say in response is, oh, it doesn't say that in the law, but I've been in politics long enough, as have you, to know that what's on the paper can be just the precursor to what happens in reality. And because they were also trying to weaken access to the courts, we don't know the full extent of the power they have given to themselves, but we know enough based on what we see happening in Arizona, what happened in Georgia, what the president of the United States tried to do across this country 70 times. We know that it is not going to be good for America and certainly not going to be good for voters, and it is not good for democracy. Republicans don't like what happened to Donald Trump and Rudy Giuliani uh, when they went to court uh, anywhere in this country after the election, uh, lost everywhere they went. Uh, and so uh, much of this new legislation that's being written by Republican state legislatures is aimed at the courts. It's aimed at trying to control the outcome uh, and, and minimize the court's ability uh, in certain situations, that seems also like a very, very troubling aspect of this. It's, it's what happens after the votes are cast. Well, let's be clear. This is not the sua sponte decision of various state legislatures who've been wrestling over these decisions and suddenly decided to respond. This is a coordinated attack on our democracy by heritage action, by the Republican National Committee, by the big lie and all of its purveyors. And this is their next attempt to undermine our democracy. And so, yes, they're going after the voters. They're going after the process and they're going after the remedy, because when you get through the entire gauntlet, if the last vestige of support for democracy are our courts, they're going to try to take power away there. We cannot afford to be distracted by one or two or three attacks. We've got to realize that this is a fusillade and they are attacking every vestige of the system because they want the entire thing to either be so broken that we no longer expect success to be there for, for voters or that we are so overwhelmed that we can't focus on the challenges before us. That's why there are you know, more than 400 bills in 47 states. That's why they are refusing to take federal action because they know that if we can actually focus our attention on protection of our democracy, they may lose an election. I can tell you it's not a fatal thing to lose an election, but it is dangerous to America to lose our democracy. have been staging an outright attack on voting rights. And friends, the truth is, we've seen this before, and we know what...
I want to listen to something that the vice president said today about the life of single mothers in this country. Uh, she grew up uh, being mothered by a single mother. She talked to Zerlina Maxwell about this today on Zerlina's radio show. Let's listen to this. My mother raised my sister and me. She had two goals in her life, to raise her two daughters and end breast cancer. She was a, a breast cancer researcher. When my mother worked long hours, which she did almost always, including on weekends, my sister and I would walk two houses down to Mrs. Shelton, who was the second mother to us, and, and to help take care of us. My mother would talk her entire life about how she could not have made the discoveries she made on breast cancer, was it not for Mrs. Shelton? We have never had a vice president with that kind of sensibility about the life of single mothers. You are a single mother, uh, and you are finding in uh, all sorts of provisions of law biases against uh, single mothers, including what you've identified uh, about the child tax credit. Could you explain what you're trying to achieve with that? Yes, so the expanded child tax credit, the way it's set up is it has an income phase out. When you hit X income, you start to not receive it. When you go over a certain income, you don't receive any of it. That makes some sense. We're trying to target people in need. But there's an assumption built into this that single parents simply don't have the same level of expenses in raising a child as married couples. And it's the opposite. We know that single parents face more income volatility, more expense volatility, spend a higher proportion of their income on childcare. Trust me, there is no discount for single parents. I've been looking. And so it's really, really important that in policy that we're trying to lift up every single American child, that we don't disadvantage children because of the marital status or family status of their parents. Yeah, so the child, the way the child tax credit works, uh, a single parent, a single mother uh, with an income comparable to a married couple gets a significantly lower child tax credit for that same one child uh, who is not in any way less expensive because that child is the child of a single mother. Exactly. So the example that you were showing is even for the single family, the single household that's earning $15,000 less trying to pay for childcare, trying to pay for food, trying to pay for adequate housing, ends up getting much less tax credit. And here's the thing, this is not really about single parents. It's about kids. Every kid in this country should have the same shot at nutritious housing, at quality childcare, and adequate housing, regardless of the marital status of their parents. That's how we're gonna lift up every single kid in this country to create our next generation workforce. to know how to get rid of your toe fungus for good then you must see this top medical doctor shows a 53 year old woman who suffered from toenail fungus what did we learn today about what it means when kevin mccarthy makes a deal with democrats on legislation well good evening lawrence thanks for having me back uh, i'm still mixed on the outcome here, on one hand, I want to be optimistic and say there are now 35 Republicans, as you pointed out, that have chosen to do the right thing. 
On the other hand, there's a part of me that says, we're just trying to form a commission. We're just trying to do what people have always done after a big crisis or a problem, like we did after 9-11, is form a bipartisan commission to look at the facts and to figure out what went wrong and to prevent it. So I don't want to give too much credit. I think I'm going to choose to be on the optimistic side of this and say that uh, there are more folks who are choosing to do the right thing. Uh, yet, uh, again, though, we have Kevin McCarthy, who has made himself very uh, clear that he will do whatever Donald Trump wants to do. Uh, let's listen to what Senator Schumer said about this. What the Republicans are doing, the House Republicans, is beyond crazy to be so far under the thumb of Donald J. Trump, letting the most dishonest president in American history dictate the prerogatives of the Republican Party will be its demise. Mark my words. It, it, this bill may not make it through the Senate. It, it will need 10 Republicans in the Senate to get to 60 votes to move it through the Senate. Mitch McConnell uh, has now announced uh, that he is opposed to it uh, because he doesn't say this, but obviously because Donald Trump is opposed to it. Well, Lawrence, how many reasons do we need to end the filibuster? Uh, yet uh, we have one more to add to the growing pile of lists in the arcane Jim Crow era procedure that remains an impediment to really any progress in American society and politics at this point. But, you know, Kevin McCarthy and Mitch McConnell continue to try to make a, a deal that their vested interest is with Donald Trump to try to win elections. Uh, Kevin McCarthy made a deal by commissioning John Pacto to negotiate with this. You know, he said um, basically... Uh, he doesn't think he's going to be able to work out a deal. That's why he commissioned this, because he wanted the delay. He can't come up with excuse after excuse as to why they didn't want to agree to this commission. The final thing he uh, tried to bet on was that they would not be able to work out a deal. Something miraculous happened. They worked out a deal, which is actually pretty surprising in Congress right now. And that caught, caught Kevin McCarthy off guard. He didn't know what to do, but he was just left saying. I just am not going to support it anymore. He didn't really have a good reason for saying that, but that's where he is. Let's listen to what your colleague Tim Ryan of Ohio said on the floor today. Uh, he's now a candidate for Senate in Ohio. Let's listen to this. I want to thank the gentleman from New York and the other Republicans who are supporting this and thank them for their bipartisanship. To the other 90% of our friends on the other side of the aisle, holy cow, incoherence. No idea what you're talking about. If we're going to take on China, if we're going to rebuild the country, if we're going to reverse climate change, we need two political parties in this country that are both living in reality, and you ain't one of them. I yield back the balance of my time. Congressman Crow, that sounded like uh, the frustration of the entire Democratic side of the House uh, speaking through uh, Congressman Ryan's voice. Yeah, you know, listen... I had to call my wife the night of January 6th when I was caught in that chamber. A police officer is dead. 140 others were brutally beaten, lost eyes, lost fingers. Uh, people that thought that they weren't going to go home to their families that day. Uh, the, the United States Capitol was taken over by a riotous mob. Uh, you have Kevin McCarthy, who literally hours after that happened, stood up and gave a speech and called me out by name and thanked me for holding the breach and helping to prevent the chamber from being overtaken by the mob. Can you fast forward a couple of months and none of it happened. 
or didn't happen the way we thought it happened, or our eyes are deceiving us from what the actual video footage shows. I am really at a loss for words for how this is happening and the extent to which they are trying to sweep this all under the rug. Uh, but I'm not going to let it happen. My colleagues aren't going to let it happen. Uh, we know what happened on January 6th. We're going to preserve that memory. And we know that uh, accountability and truth is necessary for us to move forward as a country. injured in a car accident? Look at this check for $160,000. If you're looking to get money, you're open. The breaking news of the moment is basically the New York Times confirmation of what had already been reported. Uh, New York Times saying New York Attorney's General's Office has been criminally investigating the chief financial officer of former Donald J. Trump's company for months over tax issues according to people with knowledge of the matter. Uh, Andrew Weissman, uh, you've had 24 hours to deliberate over what was breaking news uh, at this moment exactly 24 hours ago. Uh, we do have some additional information uh, since then. Uh, what is your reading of the legal jeopardy for Donald Trump now in the state of New York? Couple thoughts. First, uh, Alan Weisselberg is clearly in the sights of the Manhattan office and the New York Attorney General because they clearly want him to flip. And frankly, although I rarely agree with him, Michael Cohen has it right, which is that um, Donald Trump is going to say that he was not aware of certain facts or certain valuations and blame uh, underlings. Uh, that's a time-honored tradition of people like Ken Lay and Jeff Skilling and other senior people. And frankly, it can be true um, at times. So that is something that the prosecutors need to really work out. So getting him to flip is important. He faces two types of liability. He faces potential liability for the work he did as part of the Trump organization, but then also he could face liability with respect to his own personal taxes. And of course, there's been reporting of his receiving or being the beneficiary of substantial sums uh, to pay for school tuition. And the issue is going to be, how is that reported both by the Trump organization? How is it reported by Alan Weisselberg and others? Um, did they do the right thing? And then the second thing after report is uh, last night we talked a lot about the Martin Act, and I gave you a little legal lessons about the Martin Act. And I have sort of two other things on that score. One is that the New York Attorney General's office happens to now have the leading world's expert in the Martin Act is their new head of investor protection. So it's sort of, again, you can't swear what's, you know, what's adding up, but they have certainly the resources um, of a leading expert on the Martin Act, which is an act that uh, takes care of uh, people who commit fraud in connection with real estate offerings in New York. And the second is that there is a tax statute that is, um, that, uh, and a false statement statute under New York law that is 
quite broad that makes it a crime to submit falsified or to have falsified business records, particularly if you're doing that in aid of another crime. So for instance, if you have false Trump organization business records and you're doing that to aid in either a federal or state tax scheme, you can be charged with that very broad false statement charge under New York law, and that is a felony. homeowners, if you are sick of paying too much money for electric bills and you have a mirror that looks like this in your home, you can get paid. Here's more of Congresswoman Katie Porter in yesterday's hearing questioning the CEO of the pharmaceutical company AbbVie about why he doubled the price of a cancer drug called Imbruvica. AbbVie itself didn't spend any money to create Imbruvica. It was invented by a smaller company, Pharmacyclics, which you later acquired, correct? We paid $21 billion for the company, correct? Are there fewer side effects, sir? Uh, no, it has the same side effect profile. Okay. Mr. Gonzalez, do people need less of this medicine, Imbruvica, to treat lymphoma now? Uh, no. So AbbVie took zero risk to develop this drug. You bought it approved for the market, knowing it would be profitable. You hiked the price to pay for R&D, but you haven't made the drug any better, even as you doubled the cost. Joining us now is Democratic Congressman Katie Porter of California. She represents California's 45th District and is a member of the House Oversight Committee. And Congressman Porter, I would like to be doing what I think people are doing uh, in uh, their TV rooms around the country, and that is giving you a standing ovation. Uh, but we have to use every minute here to cover these, this important ground. Uh, I have to thank you so much uh, for that questioning because I used to sit through uh, hearings in the Senate Finance Committee, which has jurisdiction over health care, uh, and the assumption that uh, the higher American drug prices were there in part, at least in part, uh, to pay for research and development was never seriously questioned and certainly never dismantled the way you did yesterday. It's really important that we test these assumptions because that's our job is to get answers. So witnesses are there to give us information and we're there to push back and try to get answers. And it's true that pharmaceutical companies spend money on research and development, but it is not correct that that is the primary reason that they double and triple and quadruple raising the prices of these drugs. It's to profit their shareholders. And I want them to be honest about that because then we can begin having a debate about what to do about the cost of prescription drugs. My other favorite thing that you expose in these hearings is the, the 
utter incompetence of the Washington lobbyists who prepare these witnesses and allow that CEO to go in there without a command of the own of his own financials of his own company. Very simple issues like how much in dividends, uh, the, the, the items that you present there. Does it continue to surprise you that the lobbyists haven't figured out how to prepare witnesses for these hearings that you're going to be participating in? It does surprise me because this is a serious undertaking. I have been a witness before Congress and I would spend hours and hours not just writing my testimony, but doing research, trying to understand who the other witnesses were, what the context of the hearing was going to be. I mean, you could literally see me coming down the hallway in Rayburn with my whiteboard. So it is not a surprise where I'm going and what I'm going to be doing. And yet they continue to just really not put in the work. And I think that shows a disrespect for the American people and for the process of democracy. wondered what happens when you pour salt into a cabbage? The N Remedy not only helps you balance the gut flora. Let's talk about one of the cult members, Marco Rubio, who ran against Donald Trump for president, calling him a con man nonstop for a while there. And then when he lost to Donald Trump in the primaries, he kind of immediately joined the cult. Uh, Vel Demings is now on the verge of announcing that she's going to run against uh, Marco Rubio in Florida. So you could have a Senate campaign in Florida next year where cult member Marco Rubio has to defend Donald Trump every day on the campaign trail for the latest twist and turn in a criminal prosecution of Donald Trump, while Val Demings, a former law enforcement official herself, uh, is out there campaigning against uh, the kind of uh, crime and corruption that Donald Trump represents and uh, campaigning positively for Senate as Marco Rubio has the job of defending Donald Trump. Yeah, grab the popcorn, Lawrence. So um, if you're a Democrat, um, or I would say, you know, even if you're not a Democrat, you're a Republican who believes in democracy versus autocracy and realizes Democrats have to hold the Senate and the House, this is extraordinarily important news. So first of all, Marco Rubio seems afraid of everything. Val Demings seems like she's afraid of nothing. So I think there's a real contrast uh, in terms of strength and character. But listen, there's a belief that is Florida gone for the Democratic Party? Listen, Obama wins it, uh, you know, narrowly in 12. Uh, you know, Hillary loses it narrowly in 16. Gillum and Nelson lose it by a whisker in 18. Trump opened up a few point win in 20. Uh, but Florida with the right candidate. Uh, and the right excitement and the right organization uh, is a winning state. And you have to look at the Senate picture in totality. The Democratic Party, in my view, this isn't just about maintaining control in 2022, as important as it is. The 2024 cycle in the Senate races is really brutal for the Democrats. You know, you've got Joe Manchin's seat. You've got John Tester's seat. Uh, we're not playing that much offense. Maybe we'll be able to uh, mount a campaign against Cruz in, in a presidential year. Maybe Rick Scott. So you have to maximize uh, in Wisconsin this cycle, in North Carolina, in Pennsylvania. You've got to protect Warnock and Kelly. And those could both be tough races. And you've got to have uh, some states like Florida. And I, and I remind people that this time in the 2020 cycle, 
there were very few people in politics, in either party, who thought that either Georgia race would be super competitive. And obviously, they ended up determining the, the president or uh, the, the Senate uh, control. So Florida is really important. I think Val Demings can put it in play. And you have to have as many shots on goal as possible. So you don't have to win them all, not just to retain the majority. But again, I think the Democratic Party has to exit 22 uh, with some room to spare because you could give up some of that ground in 24. Jamie Harrison here. I'm reaching out because I need you to sign our petition in support of I Will Vote. Andrew, I want to get your reading of this legal development tonight for Donald Trump. Here you have uh, the New York State Attorney General teaming up, in effect, with the Manhattan District Attorney, sharing resources, sharing information in a criminal investigation of Donald Trump's businesses. Yeah, so I think something that's important to note is that the New York Attorney General generally only has civil authority with one important exception, and that is something called the Martin Act. Um, viewers may remember that Elliot Spitzer, when he was the New York Attorney General, used the Martin Act a lot. Um, people think that the Martin Act only covers securities and commodities fraud, that is fraud or deceit in the sale or purchase of securities or commodities, but it also has a provision that covers fraud or deceit in the sale um, of real estate, that is co-ops or condominiums in New York State. So um, we don't know exactly what they're being being looked at, but if you narrow it down to, you know, what does the New York Attorney General have criminal jurisdiction over? It's the Martin Act, and if you look at the provisions of the Martin Act, which are securities, commodities, and real estate, it seems if you you know add connect the dots, that must be what Letitia James, the New York Attorney General, has now in her sights in connection with the Trump investigation. And when you think about the pattern and practices of the Trump organization, they already lost a real estate fraud case in California where they defrauded uh, people who were buying condos in a so-called Trump development uh, in California. Uh, that was a, that happened during the uh, 2016 presidential campaign, uh, where all of those people who were defrauded uh, by the Trump operation were coming forward, going public. Uh, so it, it's it's not like this business is uh, unfamiliar uh, about where the lines are on criminal fraud in real estate. Sure. Well, as an inveterate New Yorker, um, you know, until a little while ago, you could see Trump the Trump name, you know, plastered all over um, hotels and other uh, residences that, that he had and developed across the city. Many of those have been taken down in light of uh, people's reactions to the presidency. But um, you can imagine the attorney general looking at any and all representations that were made by the Trump organization in connection with those real estate deals. And so in, in a situation like that, it, I guess from this distance, it's hard to say who personally 
has legal liability for those representations. Uh, and I guess that would depend on the evidence base. Absolutely. Um, this is, um, you know, just because uh, there's an investigation, it doesn't mean that there's going to be liability. And it certainly doesn't mean that even if there's going to be liability, that it's going to go all the way to the top. That being said, it is important to remember that the Trump organization is small um, and that Donald Trump is a notorious micromanager. So, you know, if there's something there, you know, somebody is going to take the fall for that. And, you know, I would suspect that Letitia James, like the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, is going to be upping the pressure on people like Weisselberg to cooperate with the investigation. So does the partnership now, prosecutorial partnership with the Manhattan District Attorney's Office by the State Attorney General indicate that what the State Attorney General is investigating occurred in Manhattan? Well, it, it certainly occurred in New York State. Um, that That is something that at least in part it has to have occurred here for there to be jurisdiction um, but just remember, this is where the Trump organization is. Um, so, you know, that that makes a lot of sense. It's not like um, this investigation is being, you know, brought in Nebraska. Um, this is really the, the, you know, ground zero for where you would expect a investigation to be into Trump as a businessman uh, to be housed um, here. What is the likelihood that uh, Donald Trump's criminal defense lawyers already knew about this partnership in this prosecution? You know, that's a good question. Um, you know, I don't know that they they would know that. Um, this, this could be something that's taking them somewhat by surprise. Um, you know, we just don't have a lot of insight into the communications that have been going on uh, with the uh, the state and, you know, that speaks well of the state that they are, you know, keeping their investigation, you know, under wraps and, you know, will only, uh, you know, unveil it if and when uh, there are charges. Um, but it is a little surprising that we haven't heard anything from the defense lawyers, because if you look at the Rudy Giuliani situation, you know, there you have a defense lawyer who's taken a very different tack of trying to make everything public and, and thinking that, you know, the best defense is a, is a good offense. The statement that uh, we at MSNBC have uh, now confirmed uh, is that it says we have informed the Trump organization that our investigation into the organization is no longer purely civil in nature. We are now actively investigating the Trump organization in a criminal capacity along with the Manhattan DA. W was the state attorney general under any obligation to tell uh, the Trump organization about this change? Uh, no, and th that's a great question. I would, I would suspect that the reason for that is, again, increasing the pressure on witnesses to cooperate. You know, it's one thing if you face civil liability, and that's, that's merely a question of money. And for um, people in the Trump organization, you know, that's their ways to take care of that, uh, that liability. Um, but criminal exposure is, you know, a completely, you know, different game. Um, you know, there's no way to buy your, your way out of jail.
made USAA insurance for veterans like Martin. When a hailstorm hit, he needed his insurance to get it done right, right away. USAA, what you're made of, we're made for. You wrote a book about Donald Trump's businesses. Donald Trump sued you uh, because you said he was not a billionaire. Donald Trump lost that lawsuit against you because Donald Trump is not a billionaire. Uh, no one outside of the Trump organization knows more about the Trump businesses than you do. Uh, what is your reaction tonight to this announced, publicly announced teamwork now in a criminal investigation of the Trump businesses by the New York State Attorney General and the Manhattan District Attorney? This, this dramatically ups the legal pressure on Trump, on Alan Weisselberg, and on the entire Trump organization, Lawrence. You know, up until now, Cy Vance's investigation of Trump was uh, the more consequential of the two relative to Tish James's uh, investigation. She's the New York Attorney General because he had a criminal probe in, in motion, and a criminal probe potentially carries a prison sentence with it, a civil probe. Uh, usually at its worst, just can result in a massive fine. Uh, the fact that she, that the New York AG, has decided to convert her case from a civil probe into a criminal prosecution suggests that she has evidence of criminal intent. That is the standard in a criminal case, that uh, 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 the defendant knew that he or she was doing something wrong and had criminal intent behind it. And, and that is a very difficult and challenging standard uh, to meet in a prosecution. Uh, and, and I would think that both uh, Cy Vance and Tish James are, are dotting all their I's and crossing all their T's in this investigation because it involves a former president. And it, it, it either, either one of these things would be an epic prosecution. And it appears they're also joining forces. So uh, this is this is just a huge huge development in in the in the in the investigation of Donald Trump. Uh, Andrew Weissman told us that the Attorney General is under no obligation to make this public statement, uh, and under no obligation to communicate this to Donald Trump's criminal defense lawyers. Uh, so uh, your initial point about the heat that this puts on the people in this case, it seems to have been announced as a way of alerting all of the other potential witnesses or defendants in this case, uh, this is more serious now than you thought it was yesterday. And remember that throughout her investigation, uh, the, the Trump uh, family has essentially thumbed their nose at her. Eric Trump um, missed sitting for a deposition, as I recall, initially with her. She had to compel him to sit for a deposition. We know that at least one of the things she's looking at is how they value it in the state that Trump owns in, in, uh, in, in Westchester County. Um, and, and they haven't played ball. And I think, I think the fact that she's going public with this suggests um, that, that she wants it to be known as a tool for, for pressuring them and, 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 and bringing them to heel, as it were, uh, in the course of what she's lo looking at. We made USAA insurance for veterans like Martin. When a hailstorm hit, 
He needed his insurance to get it done right. Right away. USAA. What you're made of, we're made for. Is, uh, the, we don't get our incomes in one lump sum per year, uh, and this is a way of dealing with that phenomenon of where this used to be delivered in one lump sum per year. Here it is being spread out in a predictable, usable way throughout the year. You know, absolutely right. This is a historic tax cut. It is one of the hallmarks of the American Rescue Plan in providing security, dignity, opportunity to virtually every middle class family. And as you said, being a, a policy that can have a major impact in reducing child poverty. But you're right. Normally, you wait for your tax cut till the next year. But the president, so there, there's a couple of things here that are that are quite new and important. One we're giving that tax cut now, starting in July, when people need it, when they're still coming back from the COVID pandemic. But as you said, Lawrence, it's going to come every month. And one of the things I'm most proud of in our work with Treasury and the IRS is that for the people who get direct deposit, which is 80% of American taxpayers right now, it's going to come on the 15th of every month. So working families trying to make ends meet will know that if they have two children, they're going to get $500 every month. Or if they have two children under six, it will be 600 every month right on the 15th. And I do think this reflects uh, a, a lot of the policy heart of Joe Biden, uh, not just that it's going to help the dignity and security of families, that it's going to reduce poverty. But when you talk about him uh, you know, wanting to know the details. One of the things he presses, and this was true in the campaign, it's true as long as I've worked with him, is how are how's it going to affect people? How are they going to know what they're getting? How do average people who are working hard every day just supporting their family are going to understand what the government's doing for them? So here, they're going to know. January, June, July 15th, August 15th, September 15th, they're going to know that there's that extra support that they can plan on and count on. And this has really never been done before. And I think it's an important thing. And Lawrence, let's be clear, it's critical for this year, but nobody wants this to end after this year. That's why it's also extending it, making sure it goes on and on. It's a key part of the president's American families plan. And I think it's going to be very hard pressed for many Republicans to decide after this monthly child tax credit goes out to all working families that they're going to oppose President Biden's effort to have this go on for years to come. The uh, It has never been done before, but uh, as we know, it has been thought about, uh, strategized by policy experts in the arena, trying to regularize, trying to normalize uh, income support for people who need it uh, in a way that uh, so-called normal incomes arrive into people's lives. Uh, and government has always had this kind of this grudging form of delivery. You know, there's all these conditions and these timings and these things that make the delivery uh, less useful in people's lives. I mean, it works, it's helpful, but one lump sum is kind of the least useful way to get money. You know, absolutely. And actually, our vice president, Kamala Harris, used to say that some of the, the reasons that people get taken advantage of with predatory 
predatory payday lending is that even though they know maybe tax relief's coming, you know, when that car breaks down, when they need that extra expense, when they're dealing with a, you know, a medical issue, that money's not there. So to make sure that people have the option, really, it will automatically go monthly to every American's. I think both the fact that you know, the president's increased it to 3000 per child under 17, 3600 for children under six years old and made it uh, go monthly. And Lawrence, an important thing was before this, a family, the most hard pressed American families, maybe making 15, 16,000. They got less of a child tax credit than a family making 10 times as much. That doesn't make sense when that lower income, hard pressed working family needs it just as much. Now it's going to be the same for everyone. That's more fair. And yes, some experts believe that over time it could reduce child poverty in half while being major tax relief for middle tens of millions of middle-class families. Uh, Gene, before you go, I, I have to ask you about this New York Times article reporting behind the scenes how President Biden does the job. Uh, you have now been up close with three presidents, starting with President Clinton, working on complex economic policy, uh, many issues that most presidents have not uh, dealt with before uh, coming into the Oval Office. What would you add to that uh, New York Times report about the way President Biden approaches these complex decisions and digesting this complex material? Well, you know, I, I think in his heart, he understands that what might seem like a policy detail to perhaps some reporters is a life or death issue for a family, making sure that people get the child tax credit, as we said, could reduce poverty for half of children. That's not just a detail, you know, does it, does it come on a regular basis? He understands, he understands whether people are getting the health care, whether child care centers are closing. We just announced a restaurant uh, grant program, restaurant revitalization. You know, he realizes, you know, when we were in the Oval talking about it, he was talking about relatives of, of his that he had seen. Uh, his first father-in-law worked so incredibly hard on a restaurant. He sees that real person, and he knows getting that right might be a detail in a policy world, but it's life and death to a working family, to their hopes, their aspirations, the desire that everyone has to care for their children. So what I like about the details is not him in the details is not just the wonky detail, but that sense that he sees in every person, in every family, he sees that time that his father had to go tell them that they lost their job, that they weren't sure about their economic security. And it's that detail that's kind of that's rooted in his heart and his, his sense that economics is really about ensuring the dignity and respect and place in the community of all of us. Hey, thanks for watching our YouTube channel. You should know that you can follow today's top stories and breaking news and catch up on your favorite MSNBC shows all in one place. Download the NBC News app today. We make USAA insurance for renters who make the most of their space and money. That's why we make it easy to cover the stuff you love for as little as 33 cents a day. USAA, what you're made of, we're made for. Today, uh, Ben, uh, much has been made of the distinction between the president supporting a ceasefire 
and specifically calling for a ceasefire. What is the difference in that language? Well, having written many of those types of statements and readouts myself, Lawrence, I think it's a difference between taking a passive approach where you want to be seen as for an outcome. We'd like a ceasefire, but you don't want to be seen in any way to be publicly pressing Israel to take that step. They're clearly trying to navigate between a desire to not be out of step with Israel and the Israeli government and the fact that there's growing, I think, horror and revulsion at the civilian casualties we see in Gaza and a growing feeling in the Democratic Party of why do we continue to give a blank check to Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu, who has shown no interest in peace with the Palestinians and, frankly, was Donald Trump's best friend and has undermined Democratic presidents before. Then uh, take us inside the way uh, the discussion goes inside the White House in a situation like this. Certainly there must be some people in the White House advocating uh, that, the, that the president should call for a ceasefire. Others were advocating for this other position. How does that debate go? What is, what is the argument against calling for a ceasefire? Well, I've been in this debate about Gaza conflicts myself, Lawrence. I think that the argument against is probably, look, uh, we'll be better able to influence what Netanyahu does uh, if we are backing him publicly and pressing him privately. You heard the administration say repeatedly today that these intense diplomatic conversations, that's kind of code for them saying, trust us, we're telling them privately that we have to move to a ceasefire, but we fear that if we go public with that, that then Netanyahu might want a conflict with us and might want to resist us. I think that's one side of the equation. I think the other side of the equation is people saying, hey, look, we're losing moral authority in the world right now, where we're essentially totally isolated uh, and not calling for this ceasefire in a situation where we see these horrible images out of Gaza. And frankly, Netanyahu hasn't listened to us uh, in the past on issues related to the Palestinians anyway. And and there's valid points on both sides of those uh, debates, uh, Lawrence, but I think clearly they've chosen the pathway of not wanting to have any public daylight with Netanyahu and try to handle this all privately. And Ben, I take it this is one of those presidential situations that when everyone leaves the room and the decision is made on the language, everyone knows that this holds for about the next few hours, not the next few days. That's right. And what you saw is everybody using the same language, from Tony Blinken to Jen Psaki. Uh, But they also know that this is fluid and the next day circumstances will change. I think part of what's so tragic, Lawrence, in these Gaza wars, as you get close to the end, Sometimes the pace of the Israeli strikes pick up because they're trying to hit every target that they can before it moves to a ceasefire, before they feel like the international pressure is so great that they have to move in that direction. Uh, And so when you're in the White House, particularly in a situation when you're dealing with a conflict where we have a lot of agency, right? We provide a lot of that military assistance to Israel, but we're not in control. You're not sure what you're going to wake up to. Hey, thanks for watching our YouTube channel. You should know that you can follow today's top stories and breaking news and catch up on your favorite MSNBC shows all in one place. Download the NBC News app today. We've got you taken care of, Sergeant Houston. Thank you. That was fast. One call to USAA got her a tow, her claim paid, and even her grandpa's dog tags back. Get a quote. This is sounding like, for you, uh, a a stunningly frustrating time of your professional life, especially since uh, this is happening in your party. 
Yeah, absolutely, Lawrence, and thanks for having me on. But you've hit on the main points and why this is so frustratingly irrational. Um, I defeated the former chief elections official, who is a Democrat in, in 2020. And, you know, just the idea that I would be covering up for the guy that I spent the previous year criticizing is, is facially laughable. And uh, so, th th as you say, th there were Republicans who were elected with these same ballots that Joe Biden won the county uh, in. Exactly the same ballots delivered some races to Republicans. Uh, and yet there's not a single question about a single Republican who won in Arizona. Yeah, without getting into the motives, I would say that if you really wanted to look at close races that were on every single ballot in Maricopa County, you should start with mine. Mine was the closest race that was in on every single ballot. I only won by about 5,000 votes out of 2 million cast. So um, I don't know why they're not starting with mine. And so w what is happening uh, within the Republican Party? Is your view of this spreading within the Republican Party in Arizona, or are the cyber ninjas uh, winning the hearts and minds of Republicans in Arizona? For a second. Mr. Richard, oh, I'm sorry, uh, I, I don't you... know what happened there okay. for a second, but okay. um, yep, here I am. Apologies for that. Yes. So, so I, I think we're, we're struggling with a first mover problem. And that first mover problem is that Republicans who have stuck their necks out have gotten them whacked off completely. And so now I'm moving out with the entire county, and we're hoping that other Republicans see this. I know there are other Republicans, even in the Arizona State Senate, who say enough of this nonsense, and I'm hoping that they will uh, be heartened by our efforts and join us. Let's listen to another Republican, Jack Sellers, on the Maricopa County Board of Supervisors. This board is done explaining anything to these people who are playing investigator with our constituents' ballots and equipment paid for with real people's tax dollars. People's ballots and money are not make-believe. It's time to be done with this craziness and get on with our county's critical business. Mm. Uh, Mr. Richard, is this a, a coordinated kind of uh, public uprising by Republicans against this process? Yes, absolutely. Everyone on the county said enough. We're tired. We're humans. We're tired of our people being denigrated. We're tired of being accused of unlawful activities. And so on Thursday night, every single county official said this is enough. We're, we're standing up. We're pushing back. We had hoped to stay on the sidelines. I ran on the slogan of making the recorder's office boring again. Never in a thousand years would I have imagined I would have been on MSNBC. Um, and I can't imagine you imagine having the Maricopa County recorder on your show. That probably was never a character in the West Wing. I did not know that there was a Maricopa County recorder until today. So, so you were going to succeed. Uh, so you, it, 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 you reached the point, it sounds like, where silence just became untenable, including the fear that you would be perceived as being part of uh, what you're calling this unhinged process. It's more the continued character assassination and defamation against the hardworking people in my office we're an office of 160 full-time employees who work their butts off, quite frankly. And it, it's just, it's enough. 
And, you know, I realize that this might have some political ramifications for me, but I don't care. No, I just absolutely do not care. These continued lies are hugely inappropriate and they're disrespectful to so many people who are just normal human beings who go home and they, they root for the suns and they watch Netflix and just work their jobs diligently and with integrity. Hey, thanks for watching our YouTube channel. You should know that you can follow today's top stories and breaking news and catch up on your favorite MSNBC shows all in one place. Download the NBC News app today. USAA is made for the safe pilots, like Matt, who can come to a stop with barely a bomb. The Biden administration is undertaking a massive family reunification effort, trying to undo some of the damage done under the Trump administration's zero-tolerance immigration policy. The Family Reunification Task Force is working to reunite more than 1,000 families, including children who were separated from their parents when their parents were deported. Here's 11-year-old Estela Juarez, who had a message for Donald Trump that she delivered during the 2020 Democratic National Convention. Instead of protecting us, you tore our world apart. Now, my mom is gone, and she's been taken from us for no reason at all. Every day that passes, you deport more moms and dads and take them away from kids like me. Estella's mom, Alejandra Juarez, was 18 years old when she came to the United States illegally to escape violence in Mexico. A few years later, living in Florida, Alejandra met and married her husband, Timo. He served in the U.S. Marine Corps and became a naturalized citizen before deploying to Iraq with the Army National Guard. The couple had two daughters, both born U.S. citizens. A traffic stop in 2013 exposed Alejandra's immigration status. But under the Obama administration, she was allowed to stay as long as she checked in with immigration authorities twice a year. Then, in August of 2018, under Donald Trump's zero-tolerance immigration policy, Alejandra Juarez was deported, leaving behind her husband and her daughters, aged 9 and 16. On Mother's Day weekend, the Juarez family was united. Joining us now, Alejandra Juarez and her daughter, Estela Juarez, who were reunited last weekend after being separated for three years. Estela, as you saw, spoke at the 2020 Democratic National Convention. She also petitioned the president and Congress to allow her mother back into the country. She's writing a children's picture book, Until Someone Listens, about her family's experience. Welcome to both of you. Uh, I cannot imagine, Estela, what it feels like and what it felt like to welcome your mother last weekend. Tell us a bit about what that was. Well, it was honestly amazing. It was a long journey to get her back. Um, but it was help from a lot of people. Um, it wasn't just me. So we had a lot of people around us to help. But I'm happy I can finally hug her. Alejandra, I have to ask you, um, you know, you, you've always had high hopes for your daughter, Estella. Some of these high, high hopes are already realized for what she has done over the last three years. Yes, I am extremely proud of her. I mean, the fact that I'm here today, you know, you have everything to do with Estella. I mean, she, I mean, and of course, the current administration and my congressman, but oh my gosh, she's a champion. I'm so proud of her. Uh, Estella, this is a part of a story that a lot of people don't know, that their parents were living here uh, as undocumented immigrants and, and living their lives, their full lives with their family. And then one day, when you were nine years old, 
your mother was taken away. Can you just tell us what that felt like for you? Well, I don't think my family deserved what happened to us because my mom, out of the 21 years that she's been here, she has no criminal record and she was just living here with her family. So it was hard. And at the time I was nine years old, so I didn't understand why she had to leave. But now I understand it's because the immigration system is broken. So hopefully we can fix that soon. Uh, that's amazing. Alejandra, you, you actually... Uh, you know, you actually worried about the values of, of what your deportation meant. You you were married to somebody who has served their country. Your children are born here. Uh, and one of the things you pointed out was that your your daughters have a, have a full and, and promising life in front of them. When you yank a mother away from their children, you, you increase the likelihood of a broken family and, and people who, who grow up troubled. Exactly. When you take a parent away from a child, you automatically, you're torturing that child and that child, you know, becomes broken. And what can you get out of a broken child? I mean, you know, my kids have, you know, they still do, but they have so much potential. And I was so afraid that because of what happened to me being away from me, you know, they were going to become broken. So, um, this is this is just cruel and unnecessary and inhumane. It needs to be fixed. Estelle, I, I'm having trouble having a, you know understanding how much you know about the world at your age. I'm I'm many times older than you are, and I don't think I have as clear an understanding of it. But you wrote to the president, President Biden, because you thought that he might understand some of this, having lost his own son. You wrote to him and said, maybe he will understand what it felt like for your mother to be taken away from her daughter. You said, ever since my mom left, I have a hole in my heart. I know you have one, too. I'm deeply sorry about the loss of your son. I wish you didn't have to go through such loss. I feel that my, I feel blessed that my mother is still alive. Uh, you continue to say, I see her every day when we video chat. I can see her face and talk to her, but I cannot touch her, hug her, or feel her arms around me. My family has prayed that you would become president. I am praying with all of my heart that you will help her come home. Is that hole in your heart healing? Definitely now that she's back that I can hug her and I have her back again. But I just want to say thank you so much. You have no idea how much she means to my family, Mr. President Biden, that I have my mom back. And I'm sorry it happened to you. I know it's very hard to lose your loved one. Alejandra, what do you want people to understand about this process of, of deporting law-abiding people who have been here for a long time and, and, and put their roots down in America? Um, it is horrible. It is unnecessary and inhumane. We are, we immigrants, majority of us, they ju we just want a normal life like any American. We just want to come and work and raise our kids and raise them, in my case, and in so many cases, properly. We just want what every American wants. We even want a second chance. We just want to live here legally. Hey, thanks for watching our YouTube channel. You should know that you can follow today's top stories and breaking news and catch up on your favorite MSNBC shows all in one place. Download the NBC News app today. U.S.
USAA is made for the safe pilots, like Matt, who can come to a stop with barely a bobble. With USAA Safe Pilot, when you drive safe, you can save up to 30% on your auto insurance. USAA, what you're made of, we're made for. Get a quote today. Dr. Jar, let me begin with you, and I want to share uh, Kamala Harris's joy today with that phrase, nice to see you. It is uh, going to be a different world we're living in among, especially, obviously, with vaccinated people. Uh, what, do you, what do you have to add by way of kind of details of behavior that you think we should be aware of now under these guidelines of vaccinated people uh, can basically... Uh, do what they want without a mask outside and inside. Yeah, so Lawrence, uh, first of all, thanks for having me on on this really momentous day. It is a momentous day. It marks an important change in the pandemic. It means that people who have gotten fully vaccinated can go back to their daily lives the way we knew them before the pandemic. There are a few things that remain, right? Um, I am fully vaccinated, obviously. I would uh, still put on a mask if I was in a super crowded space, indoors or maybe even outdoors. Uh, in, in big kind of dense crowds for long periods of time, you just have a We're listening to throwback news. That was an old report today, July 31st, 2021. The CDC is no longer saying that they don't need masks if they're vaccinated. Now they're saying everyone needs a mask, that the COVID variant is spreading so rapidly that it's breaking through the vaccinated people. It's breaking through their vaccinations and they are becoming part of the people that are showing up in the hospitals, um, ill with the effects of the variant. So the, the uh, messaging here in the United States, in North America, the CDC's messing, messaging is a bit confusing because it has changed back and forth in a short span of time. So if you're in another country and you're listening to this and you may be planning to come to the United States, this is an old report. This is just a uh, wind up of a lot of old news that some of us just have not been able to follow the news day after day, month after month. So this is a wind-up of old news reports and some that aren't too old. But this report about the fully vaccinated can stop social distancing and wearing masks indoors and outdoors, that's no longer the case. That didn't last very long. It only allowed the vaccine, um, the vaccinated population to uh, go unmasked for a little while, but things are quickly becoming uh, a 
full-blown crisis. As a matter of fact, it's already been called a crisis in the last week because of the variant, the COVID variant vaccine is spreading so rapidly. The viral load for both the vaccinated and vaccinated is virtually the same. Some that are vaccinated are doing very well. and They have no problems. Others are not well. Uh, Lawrence, when you think of uh, over 100 police officers were injured, uh, were getting beat upside the head with lead pipes, trampled on, sprayed with pepper spray, uh, you know, and for them to just dismiss it, for the congressman from Georgia to just dismiss it, I think is absolutely appalling. They can uh, continue to make the argument to the American people that they're completely disconnected from reality. Look at the video you're showing now. And they're saying that it was just a normal day on Capitol Hill. How much more disconnected can you be from reality? And I think, you know, we may have to wait for 18 months for the next election, but the vast majority of Americans look at what uh, we're seeing right now, and they think it's an insurrection that tried to overturn the peaceful transition of power. And they can say all they want, and it may play well in a Republican primary, but it's not going to play in the larger swath of the American electorate. You know, one of the things I asked uh, President Biden about yesterday was how can you be in serious negotiations uh, with someone like Kevin McCarthy, whose word doesn't mean anything? He gave Liz Cheney his word that he supported her weeks ago and he did support her. But that only lasted for a few weeks before he completely changed sides. Uh, And as you as you watch these House Republicans try to get more distance on January 6th in the hope that people will forget what it is. They don't even seem to understand that we have videotape. We still have the videotape of all of it. Yeah, no, no question. And, uh, you know, you, you give the president credit, patience of Joe. Uh, you know, he's out there reaching out. And I think it's important, Lawrence, that he, that he does that in spite of the incivility, in spite of the uh, irresponsibility that he reaches out and the American people say, look at this gentleman, look at this decent guy, really trying to trying to heal the country. And, and these guys, in many instances, are acting like imbeciles, denying what is happening in front of our very eyes. You're going to believe me or your lying eyes. And the president reaches out. He's going to pull up just like we did during the rescue package. I mean, if they're not going to be serious brokers and be honest brokers, We'll pull up and we'll go through the transportation bill and the infrastructure bill without them. But I think it's important the American people continue to see what it, what decency looks like, what someone who's really trying to reach across the aisle looks like. And, and that's why he's at a 63% approval rating right now. And Donald Trump and the Republican Party is becoming a smaller and smaller constituency. And as, he, as the president continues this public outreach to, re, to Republicans in Congress, other Republicans in Congress are saying things like they were tourists. They looked like tourists on January 6th. So if no deal comes in the end, no kind of bipartisan deal comes, it will mean that the president couldn't get a deal with a party that sounds increasingly crazy. Yeah, yeah, and, that, and that's exactly it. But he still tried. I mean, 
mean, you really want to be in a position where I think most Americans are going to say, you know, oh, okay, like he's tried and you guys are talking craziness. You're in la-la land here. Some of the things you're saying, you got members of Congress screaming at other members of Congress. My wife's a first grade teacher, Lawrence. I mean, this is not how we're teaching our kids. This is not how we're raising our children. And we have members of Congress screaming, not on the House floor where, you know, you're getting into it. You're allowed to have, you, you got a little, you got a, you know, opportunity there to, to show some emotion. We're talking about chasing a member of Congress out of the chamber, screaming and yelling. Uh, this is just, it, they're in la-la land, Lawrence. I don't know how else to say it. And they're, they're isolating themselves from the vast majority of the American people. President Biden is reaching out. Democrats are reaching out. They don't want anything to do with it. And we're going to move on and rebuild this country without them because we got some big issues that we're trying to deal with. And they're talking craziness that everyone can watch the video and see what actually happened. You know, we were all watching this in real time, not just Americans around the world. And this gentleman from Georgia saying it was just another another tourist activity on Capitol Hill. Hey, thanks for watching our YouTube channel. You should know that you can follow today's top stories. This for Donald Trump. So yeah, your intro was a, was what we call a, a very long compound question with lots and lots of issues. But um, starting with Don McGahn, um, you know, Don McGahn's testimony will be great to hear what he has to say under oath, except I think the American public um, should take a deep breath because it's not going to happen live before them. It's going to happen first uh, in private, which gives um, the White House and other people a chance to object if there's any concern over executive privilege. But to remind viewers, the reason Don McGahn is so important and is outlined in the Mueller report is Don McGahn was asked by former President Trump to fire uh, Robert Mueller, and he refused. But that's not really the critical part. It's that when this came to light and The Washington Post reported on it, um, Trump said, I want you, Don McGahn, to lie about um, my requesting that you uh, fire Robert Mueller. And Don McGahn said, I'm not doing that. And he was going to resign. So a critical question to ask Don McGahn is, like, if you didn't think he was committing a crime, why were you going to up and resign? Um, you know, you don't do that unless it's quite serious, even he was the White House counsel. And clearly, you know, he, there was so much he was willing to stomach. and. Um, I think that is going to be what I would say is damaging testimony, but I would not hold my breath also for expecting there to be an obstruction indictment of um, the former president. What, couldn't the House Judiciary Committee just hand their transcript of this, uh, of this testimony over to the Justice Department with a recommendation for an investigation of some kind or prosecution? They absolutely could. Um, it's worth remembering that the Justice Department already has that because the Mueller investigation consisted of FBI interviews, including detailed notes of those interviews. So they know exactly what Don McGahn told the FBI as part of the special counsel investigation. Now there will be additional questions. It will be under oath um, by Don McGahn. But 
um, the, the basic information is something the Justice Department has. So it really is a question for this Justice Department as to whether they're going to hold a former president to account uh, for what he did. So we're looking at a possible $500,000 gift, in effect, from Donald Trump uh, to Alan Weisselberg through some form or other. Uh, the IRS gift limit is $15,000. You don't have to pay taxes on a gift $15,000 or below. But a gift above $15,000, which this sounds like, uh, is a taxable gift. Uh, so this uh, looks like an area that uh, could be really problematic. Um, yeah, although I don't mean to again have cold water on your, on on people thinking this might lead directly to a Trump indictment. To me, what this is is potentially very strong evidence that uh, the Manhattan District Attorney's Office has against Weisselberg. Um, in other words, he is the one who is receiving the gift. He is the one who has an obligation. Um, if he received $500,000 to report it as income uh, on his tax returns. You don't overlook half a million dollars, um, even if you're um, very wealthy. And so to me, it signals that the Manhattan District Attorney's Office has not yet flipped Weisselberg. Um, and he really will be an important witness if you're going to make a case on Donald Trump. So I would say this is a good step, but it's a step to a cooperating witness. Um, and in your Florida story about Matt Gates, that to me is one where they're even further along because there, you know, there clearly is going to be a person flipping. Um, and that is the right hand of uh, Matt Gates. And so it is going to be a very bad day next week uh, for him. Um, and that, that's a classic prosecutorial move is to flip somebody and have him testify about the inner workings of a criminal conspiracy. Hey, thanks for watching our YouTube channel. You should know that you can follow today's top stories and breaking news and catch up on your favorite MSNBC shows all in one place. Download the NBC News app today. We made USAA insurance for some of the harder to anticipate components of what we are generally calling uh, vaccine hesitancy. So, yes, Laura, so about in the middle of December, my mother, who runs an elder care facility, who's been in the healthcare industry now for about 20 years, uh, when she told me that, that they were going to come in and actually vaccinate her elderly patients, her residents, her her whole staff, she told me that she was hesitant to take the vaccine. And it took me about seven weeks to find out why. And it turned out that she had been targeted through WhatsApp uh, misinformation saying that the COVID vaccine was technology never used on humans. And it was all in Spanish. And it was by someone who claimed to be a pharmacist from El Salvador of all places. And it just talks to you about how this disinformation is real. But Lawrence, at Volta Latino, we ended up setting up the Latino anti-disinformation lab because what we're learning is that a lot of this anti-vaxxing information that is targeting the Latino community is supposed to create a distrust in government. And if you don't trust your government to keep you safe and healthy, you're going to distrust your government to go out and vote. It's the most morbid form of voter suppression that we're seeing to date. At the same time, these individuals are also targeting the extreme right saying, look, you can't trust Biden with the vaccine, so you're going to have to go out and vote in the midterm to get him out. It's a 
really interesting to watch from the outside, but recognizing that these in, this information is dealing with the most you know, the most sacred part of our lives, which is our health and our safety in our communities. So we will continue getting these information. I finally got my mother to get a vaccine. We had a family reunion after 13 months of not seeing each other with her, my grandmother, my mother-in-law, and it was an incredibly, you know, beautiful moment. And I want more Americans to experience that because it allows us to get to what Dr. Patel was saying, a level of normalcy that we desperately so need in this country right now. And, and Dr. Patel, that's a that's a multi-month story of a conversation uh, within a family about the vaccine. That's how long it took uh, to get that one vaccination done. Uh, and so that's a conversation we all have to be willing to join. Yeah, that's right, Lawrence. It takes time. This last kind of 150 to 100 million people, including tens of millions of adolescents, where one in three parents, Lawrence, are saying that they do want the vaccine. That means two out of three families don't want it for their 12 to 15-year-olds. The only way to overcome that is not by shaming them, not by creating you know, bright lines and saying you can't come in, but to actually welcome and understand. And it's taken me, on average, two to three visits with patients who are just reluctant to convert them. And, and the conversion really is remarkable because all of a sudden they say, Oh, I don't know why I didn't do this before, but it takes it takes time. And and Lawrence, I hate to say it, in healthcare, time is money. Time is something we don't have a lot of, but that's exactly what we're going to have to do now. It's a ground game now, and so slogans and campaigns can help, but it's one on one now to get it done. Well, time is is also a risk, Maria Teresa. You're worried the entire time your mother is not getting the vaccine. You're worried that she might get COVID. Exactly, and that she's gonna that she can get exposed. And she, I mean, my mother is seventy years old, and I said this on air, and she's gonna call me tomorrow and say, "Why would I do that?" But she's, like, <laughs> but she, you know, she, she's older, and that is why the challenge is, especially you find this challenge particularly in immigrant communities where English is not the dominant language, and they are getting inundated by disinformation, not just from the United States, but from across the border. So the more that we can have peer-to-peer, one-on-one contact. We're, uh, we're, we need to do that. But we are also learning that young people are vaccine hesitant and they're getting the majority of their health information, not from doctors because they don't often have time to have health care, but from their older family. So it's going to be very much an individual conversation that we have with our loved ones so that, again, we can see them, hug them and get back to normal. Hey, thanks for watching our YouTube channel. You should know that you can follow us busy for you behind the scenes in Congress these days because House members uh, will constantly want to turn to voting rights attorneys and voting rights experts. Uh, You can tell them uh, from your experience in the field what's going on here. Uh, What is your reaction to where it stands tonight as of these 12 states and what's coming? Possibly Texas uh, might join them soon. Well, Texas will join them soon. And thank you for having me on, Lawrence. And this is one of the most dangerous periods for our democracy in our history, uh, you know, period. We had one of the worst attacks on our democracy on January 6th. I was on the House floor when that happened. And now we have state after state after state advancing creative and new laws to try and make it harder to vote, all to support the big lie. And you know, this is so concerning to me because there is no legal strategy that is going to be able to challenge and successfully beat uh, these laws in all of these states. 
most of these laws, if we don't do something at the federal level, will be in place when we go to vote in 2022. And I'm concerned about what this is you know, portending for 2024 and whether or not this version of the Republican Party would try to overthrow a presidential election if they were given power by establishing these laws. The uh, Brennan Center uh, has analyzed the For the People Act, the bill we were discussing uh, at the beginning of the show tonight with Senator Merkley, S-1. Uh, and the Brennan, Brennan Center says has analyzed each of the restrictive voting bills pending in the states and concludes that the For the People Act would thwart virtually every single one. It would foil state efforts to manipulate voting rules to exclude eligible voters or create discriminatory outcomes. Uh, that shows that the stakes could not be higher for S-1. They couldn't be. Uh, and, you know, what we're trying to do here, Lawrence, is really quite simple. It's something that Congress has done before, is set national standards so that our democracy is not radically different from state to state. And so we're setting national standards around early voting, uh, setting national standards for vote by mail, and really importantly, national standards for voter registration. Because, you know, what we're seeing is that if these laws are allowed to go through, you'll see some states where it's quite easy to vote, where the state is trying to make it easier for their citizens to be involved and to make their voices heard, and others where particularly black and brown voters and young voters, too, because many of these laws are aimed at young voters. It's extremely, extremely difficult, and we can't allow that to happen. I don't know what the Senate is going to have to do. As you know, Lawrence, you're a Senate guy. I'm a House guy. Uh, but they have to find a way uh, to make this law, uh, this bill, into law. Uh, because we need to have national standards to protect our democracy. I agree with Stacey Abrams. It's not a partisan issue. It's an issue about our democracy. It got a little personal today in the Senate uh, Rules Committee hearing uh, when the chair of the committee, Senator Klobuchar, uh, addressed Senator Cruz. Let's listen to this. When, in fact, you, Senator Cruz, not all of your colleagues here today, you were contesting the Electoral College. You were leading one of the leaders on the effort to say that the election uh, results were not correct. Um, and so you wonder uh, why we want to make sure that people have the right to vote. And you see there in that shot that your Texas senator cannot even look up and face uh, the, what is being said to him, which is absolutely true. No, he can't. And, you know, he's has bragged recently about leading uh, the insurrection on January 6th. I agree uh, with what was said earlier, uh, that he should have a scarlet S uh, everywhere he goes as a seditionist. Uh, you know, this is the, the biggest divide in our politics, Lawrence, in my opinion, isn't uh, between the parties and between ideology. It's between folks who believe in democracy and those who don't. And so we need to have uh, support uh, for the folks who believe in democracy in the form of legislation that prevents these states from putting in place these laws, prevents folks like Senator Cruz, who clearly has no interest in our democracy and is only engaged in promoting himself and, of course, promoting the big lie, uh, to prevent them uh, from being in charge of who gets elected, uh, who, who gets put in power, and how our democracy works. Hey, thanks for watching our YouTube channel. You should know that you can find a uh, situation in a moment, but. I have to say, listening to Senator Schumer then, I've never had less suspense listening to a senator ask what the other side might do. Uh, he's asking, will Republican senators in Washington support 
what's going on in Georgia and other states around the country where Republican state legislatures are restricting voting rights as much as they possibly can. I don't think that's a very suspenseful question at this point. It shouldn't be. It's really a shame that we are where we are, Lawrence. You know, I think we have to really think about what is happening. You know, while this is one, I think there are three big pieces. One, while this is certainly an, an attack on democracy, um, I think we have to really look at what the Republicans are seeking to do. I do think this is around being hungry for power. The second thing that I think that we have to really recognize is that the Republicans are really trying to legalize corruption. The bottom line is what they would like to do is really be able to rewrite what democracy is, and that essentially democracy would only be a shared group of people who would support them having some kind of advantage um, over being able to vote in the election. And so in many ways, what they're trying to seek to do is to legalize corruption. It's very similar that when we look at other countries around the world, you know, when they change the rules, that those rules actually work for their benefit. When the when the president of a country decides that he's going to change the Constitution, so in fact that he has an advantage of winning, we call that corruption. But here we are in the United States, where there is a political party that is not operating in the goodwill of what is going to strengthen democracy, but they're creating laws so that they, in fact, would have an advantage. That is the pure definition of corruption. And I think the third piece, too, is also around what we're seeing around structural racism, that fundamentally what we know is that this is a punitive measure. It was a historical black turnout in the state of Georgia and to punish black voters. What they did is they passed this legislation. And so we're going to have to have federal protection to make sure that voters all across this nation are protected and that the foundation of our democracy is not only protected, but we have to strengthen it. I'm struck by a couple of things about this uh, new campaign finance law that the governor uh, is supporting in Georgia. Uh, this, this notion that in the past in Georgia, they have banned fundraising during the legislative session by state legislators, uh, which seems to be something that they did primarily just because it would not look good. Uh, because surely you could structure your campaigns from your, your contributions from lobbyists uh, around the legislative calendar so that you would be able to get enough of your contributions from lobbyists, especially the ones you're basically serving in the legislature, as many of these Republican members are. But now they don't even care how it looks. They're saying, we don't care that it looks bad, that we're going to make it legal to raise money from lobbyists on the same day that they are asking us to vote a certain way uh, in the legislature. <laughs> Absolutely. That's why I said we are going to have to call this out what it is. This is corruption. There is a political party that is in this country that has decided that they're going to throw everything on the wall and whatever sticks, they're going to go with it. Even when you look at what happened um, in when we're talking about camp, camp, campaign finance, this wasn't really based on a value system they had. You know, this is literally based on what it was a perception. And so now, given the opportunity, a vote that I mean, a, a bill that was supposed to be providing extra security, which we all know that's a farce. Here it is. They're using it as an opportunity to be able to pack their coffers. They're using it as an opportunity to be able to take dark money. They're using it as an opportunity to give themselves and their party an advantage. And, and the other thing is this limit on individual donors. Georgia already has a very high limit of $18,100, $18,000 limit for individual donors. The federal limit 
is $5,800. It's really half that in the sense that that's $5,800 if you contribute to a candidate in the primary and contribute to the same candidate in the general. In the federal uh, limit, you, for a senator or a member of Congress, you could go all the way up to $5,800. In Georgia, you can go up to three times that already, and now the governor wants that to be unlimited. I mean, let's, let's just think about it. It is what it is. It's almost like if it looks like a duck, it quacks like a duck, it's a duck. The bottom line is this is pure corruption. They're literally trying to use the administrative process to give themselves an advantage. One, to disenfranchise and marginalize voters. Two, to literally, while other people are, while we're looking at some of the egregious things that they're doing towards voter suppression, that in fact, to try to figure out ways that they can actually put an unlimited amount of money so that they don't have a sense of accountability. And three, they are literally in a power grab. And so we have to call this what this is. We have to literally make sure that we get um, for the People Act and the John Lewis Voter Advancement Act passed. We need that immediate. We need that now. And we are also going to put pressure on our state legislators. We've got to monitor what is happening on the local level, on the state level, and literally get extended protections on the federal level. Hey, thanks for watching our YouTube channel. Again, with your personal safety, because after we talked on Thursday night, Friday became a more difficult day for you. That's apparently when the death threats got to the point where something had to be done. Yes, well, thank you so much. I'm thankful that um, the governor took me seriously and has assigned protection to me and my family, and um, we're, we're doing okay, so appreciate you asking. Um, talk about what you're seeing uh, and not seeing and not being allowed to see uh, in what you are now calling a fraudit, and thank you very much for that term because I just couldn't bring myself to call it an audit. Yeah, I've tried to be creative with what I've called it as well, because it certainly is not an audit. So, you know, I think one of the most concerning things about what we have not been able to see, um, and this is one of our election experts who's an equipment expert, was not allowed into the room where they were holding the equipment, and neither have there been any of the cameras that are broadcasting this uh, exercise allowed in that room. And so we have no idea what's been done with the equipment. Um, we certainly have seen many concerning things that are being done with the ballots, as you have mentioned. Uh, this One of the Arizona senators who voted for this now regrets it, uh, State Senator Paul Boyer. Uh, he, it's quoted in the New York Times saying, it makes us look like idiots. Uh, looking back, I don't think it would be, I didn't think it would be this ridiculous. It's embarrassing to be a state senator at this point. So, Secretary Hobbs, it sounds like he was prepared to deal with some level of ridiculous, uh, but this is beyond that. Uh, you now also have uh, the threat of a possible subpoena by the Senate Republicans trying to obtain uh, internet routers, government internet routers that uh, that they believe somehow would help inform them about the vote. Uh, what is that about? Yeah, that's a good question. I'm not really sure what it's about. Um, something about passwords. Uh, I, I don't know why you would find the passwords from the routers, but these are routers that serve the entire county of Maricopa County, which is um, a large county, one of the largest in the country. And it would impact operations for the entire county. It would impact uh, confidential health department data, confidential law enforcement data, 
it is beyond ridiculous that they think that they're entitled to these routers. And going forward, is there any, last week the idea was there's a high school graduation coming up where that building has to be used for, uh, I believe as early as next week or next weekend. Uh, and the, have they come up with some plan to deal with the high school graduation that could get in the way of their playing with the ballots? As far as I can tell, there is no plan for what they're going to do. I mean, Ken Bennett keeps saying, oh, we'll store these things somewhere. But there's really no uh, sense of where that is. So I don't think he has a plan. And nothing that is being talked about right now in terms of what the plan will, may or may not be adds any confidence to my sense that they are not taking ballot security seriously at all. At what point would uh, federal officials want to be physically present to watch what's happening here? Well, I can't speak to their intent on when they might actually send observers out or, or what the legal parameters are for them to be able to do that. But they certainly did share their concerns about the document preservation where it comes to federal laws and ballot retention for federal elections. Certainly none of the parameters of the federal law have been taken into account here. Uh, and so I'm extremely glad that they spoke up about their concerns. I have no sense that the Senate or cyber ninjas are taking these concerns seriously. And as, as you go forward, what are your, what are your biggest worries about what's happening their day-to-day -day with those ballots? Well, I, I mean, you talked a little bit about this in your intro, but they are not taking chain of custody seriously. So this means when they're unboxing ballots to do whatever they're doing to the ballots and then putting them back, they're not making sure they get put back in the right place. So that if somebody had to actually go in and do a real recount for whatever reason, they wouldn't be able to do that because the chain of custody has been damaged that much. It also appears as if they are um, commingling uncounted versus counted ballots. Um, they are leaving ballots unattended on tables. They are just absolutely not taking seriously the, the magnitude of what they have in front of them and what they need to preserve uh, in terms of, of these ballots. Hey, thanks for watching our YouTube channel. Lori, you tweeted something yesterday that really caught my eye that sounds really interesting about the efficacy of the uh, vaccines saying that uh, recipients of the RNA vaccines have virus neutralizing antibodies in their noses. This might mean that they cannot inhale or exhale the coronavirus. Uh, what do we know about that at this stage? Hi, Lawrence. It's great to be with you. Uh, well, this is potentially very, very good news, but it is a preprint. It hasn't undergone thorough scientific review yet, so fingers crossed. Uh, but what it seems to be showing is that once people get the Pfizer or the Moderna mRNA vaccines, they actually make antibodies that are inside their noses and their mouths. This has been a big concern that many of us had, that it would be like uh, the early polio vaccine where it was possible to be vaccinated to eliminate your personal risk of disease, but you could still be a transmitter. You could still carry and give virus to others. 
And the, this study shows, well, no, you're making antibodies that are filling your nose and your mouth and therefore eliminating virus in your nose and your mouth. And that means you're not either going to exhale it at somebody or take it into your body and get reinfected in some way. So that's very good news. And it looks like the high school population now has access uh, to a vaccine. Uh, this is also going to be very important for populations beyond high school. It's going to be important for parents uh, who have been dealing with high school kids, you know, freshmen, sophomores in high school, who they have to stay home for. Maybe they're staying out of the workforce because their high school sophomore has been staying home. This vaccine changes that. What a relief it will be for parents if their teenagers and their tweens can get vaccinated and this summer do all the things that teenagers like to do, which are contrary to preventing spread of a virus. Go to the parties, you know, participate in heavy duty sports, um, be kids, be teenagers, you know, get that first teenage kiss. All those things can actually happen if they get fully vaccinated. If they want to enjoy their summer, they better get vaccinated quickly because, you know, time is running out to, be, to have achieved full vaccination before July. Uh, Joe Biden has a high approval, 71 percent, for the way he has handled uh, the coronavirus uh, pandemic since he took office. Uh, he has uh, he has basically at this point gotten uh, enthusiastic compliance with the uh, with the vaccination program that he has launched from people who are enthusiastic about Joe Biden, for the most part. Uh, there's a whole other population who are not enthusiastic, enthusiastic about Joe Biden, uh, who are not showing up in the same kinds of numbers. What do we know about, uh, if anything, uh, from past uh, pandemics that tell us how to reach uh, the reluctant or the people who are holding back for reasons other than being reluctant? They've just decided against it. Well, unfortunately, Lawrence, there will always be a finite percent that will just never get vaccinated. They, we've seen this in every outbreak, in every epidemic. There's always this finite group. What you want to do is make sure that's as small a group as possible. Ideally, you know, 10% or less of the population. If that all that all that 71% of American adults that are approving of Joe Biden's performance in this pandemic uh, followed up with full vaccination, our nation would go into this summer, uh, you know, roughly at the same level of protection as Israel. And Israel is now down to reporting one or two cases a day for a nation. So, you know, wouldn't that be a great thing if we could get in that direction? The problem is you, we, we've now hit that level where you have to provide incentives beyond what ought to be the rational and obvious. So it's not enough to say, get vaccinated and protect yourself and your family. Now we need other incentives. So for example, Governor Cuomo here in New York has announced that if you go to certain subway stations, you can get vaccinated at the subway and receive a one week free subway pass. So we're essentially buying your willingness to get vaccinated. Hey, thanks for watching.
fundamental disagreement in this country that seems to go down uh, uh, ideological lines at the moment about whether we have a need for uh, government intervention to get us out of this problem or whether the economy will fix itself just fine once more people are vaccinated and, and cities start to opening up. What's the truth of the matter as far as you're concerned? This report was kind of startling because there were a lot of job losses. There were a lot of permanent job losses and temporary job losses, which I think shocked many of us who have been watching the numbers. We had been anticipating continued growth. We hadn't really been anticipating the setbacks that we saw in manufacturing and in some of the other areas where we thought that we would still see steady but modest job growth. And the ability to reconnect workers, both from the side of employers who have lost contact with workers because the job networks that supplied them with workers have been so disrupted, but also from the workers who now are uh, separated from those kind of jobs or those kind of contacts. It's very complex to get them all back. And it was disturbing to see how hard it is for those who are unemployed to find jobs. Uh, we saw a big jump in people who are under five weeks unemployed. That's 237,000 people and a large chunk of those were new job entrants, not people who get unemployment checks. These are new job entrants right. who found it very difficult. Their, un their unemployment jumped. So this is interesting because there's a, there is a real concern out there, uh, and I, I've spoken to small businesses, uh, particularly restaurants, who say well, we're having trouble uh, hiring people. But that's not actually the case for most of the population. The Washington Post had a story here which reads that two Republican-led states, Montana and South Carolina, have canceled federal unemployment benefits in the last week, blaming them for hampering the return to work. And the business lobby has echoed those concerns as well, with the Chamber of Commerce using the disappointing jobs report to call for the end of the $300 a week unemployment supplement that the federal government is currently providing. Bill, give me a fact check on this. People are not taking jobs because they're, because they're getting a $300 a week temporary uh, unemployment assistance from the government? We studied this heavily in the summer because the $600 that have been added to the unemployment check, not the $300, the $600 that have been added last year caused this same argument that people wouldn't return. But we saw throughout the summer that people, in fact, did return to jobs and reemployment. It wasn't because of the $600. And it's kind of common sense from an economist perspective, just from the job theory of job search. You have to think about what's the expected value of continuing to look. We have 4 million Americans who have been unemployed over 26 weeks. That means there are a lot of Americans who know they have very little chance of finding a job. So the expected value of continuing to search is zero. So it doesn't make sense. And the data and the reports that we have, there are articles on the American Economic Review, a wonderful report from J.P. Morgan Chase Institute, all documenting that the extra money, what it did do was provide stability for the economy, continued consumption by those who are unemployed, and kept us from right. having a much worse recession.
Yeah, I mean, just to be clear, $300 a week is $7.50 an hour. It's $15,600 a year if you work full-time. Uh, if that's what you're robbing the system of, you're not a very successful robber. Uh, I want to talk to you about women, the, the point that the vice president was making. Uh, let's look at this thing called labor force participation, which is a much better uh, measure of, of what's going on in the economy. 67.6% uh, uh, men, 56.1% women. How do you inter interpret that? Well, there have always been a gap there. Labor force participation did not recover for women for most of this century, and we know what the problems are. We don't have paid family leave. We don't have enough child care facilities in the United States. What we do have is too expensive, and we haven't done what other industrialized countries have done to increase women's labor force participation. That was a problem before this happened, and it's been exacerbated by this situation. That's why what's in that American family plan that the president has proposed is so vital because we have to get women's labor force participation rate back up. We saw the birth rate in the U.S. has collapsed. Uh, the, the only way we're going to continue to grow is we have to have bigger labor force participation. Uh, and, and you studied other countries. The United States is uniquely bad at this. We are uniquely bad at this. Uh, Japan, which is confronted the same aging as Europe, uh, knew they had to get women's labor force participation rate up. Many people thought it was just cultural. It's something about the Japanese culture that, you know, you couldn't get women's labor force participation up. But it succeeded the United States. So they started off behind us and they've gotten ahead of us. And it was through doing the things that the president is proposing in terms of paid leave, help with child care, the child tax credit that he wants to extend beyond this year is vital for getting women into the labor force and is getting child care workers paid so that we can keep a supply, a steady supply of well-paid child care workers is vital to women's jobs, women's wages, and getting women in the labor Did anything come of that remarkable debate? It's very rare for us to see actual political debates in a legislature. Uh, so when you watch something like that, you think you, you, you presented your counterpart on the Republican side with, with a lot of interesting information that should have fed uh, his decision as far as writing this bill goes. What happened after that? Well, thanks for having me, Ali. And uh, a shout out to my mom, who I know is always watching and to all moms on this Mother's Day weekend. Uh, I, I got to tell you, you know, we, 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 the last, I don't know, 48 hours have been really tough. Um, we stayed up uh, until about 3 a.m. last night, came back this morning and fought this bill. Regrettably, the bill passed. Um, Democrats were able to chip away at the edges of this thing. But, you know, when a bill is sort of based on the big lie, and I was glad to see the lieutenant governor of Pennsylvania talking about that, uh, you know, it's irredeemable. And uh, these, the, the, the bill sought to have partisan, um, uh, these election, election observers looking over people's shoulders, intimidating uh, uh, voters, and, uh, and we were able to chip away at some of those things. So election judges, independent election judges, won't have somebody looking over my, you know, my mom's shoulder when she's trying to vote. And so uh, we, we thought that was an important provision to take out of the bill. The history lesson is not only something that you know, harkens back to Jim Crow or even even that purity of the ballot box language. I mean, we're, we're seeing it real time here in Texas. During the last decade, we have uh, multiple findings of intentional discrimination against the Texas legislature and voting rights matters. 
not 50 years ago, not in black and white, but real time and digital during the last decade. So uh, it's something that continues to happen in this state, already the toughest state in which to cast a vote in the union. And Republicans are continuing to pile on. Uh, we, we, we scored some, some points last night, but this is still a terrible bill that passed today. It's going to hurt voting rights in the state. Uh, Representative uh, Representative uh, Kane, uh, when confronted with the idea that uh, this was a free and fair election in Texas, we know that your lieutenant governor has offered a, a bounty for people who have found examples of, of voter fraud, doesn't seem to want to pay that bounty out for examples of Republican uh, voter fraud. Uh, but when, when Representative Kane was confronted with that information and he said, well, we don't want to have to wait for bad things to happen. Texas has enjoyed freer voting rights in the past without bad things happening. What, what was the precipitating event in Texas or in Pennsylvania or in Georgia or in Iowa or in Arizona that has caused everybody to make this priority number one? Well, it's the loss of Donald Trump uh, in the last election. The ex-president has continued to talk about stopping the steal and, uh, and he's perpetuated the big lie. His enablers have done it over and over again. Um, and that big lie is that people of color stole this election from him uh, in cities like Dallas and Houston and, and across the nation. The reality is, is, as you heard Representative Gonzalez, my colleague in the legislature, say, you know, the, the uh, Secretary of State, that's Governor Abbott's chief elections officer, she said that the election was safe, secure, and successful. There's no evidence of a voter fraud. But uh, that is, uh, you know, that's not deter Republicans in this state, uh, either the last decade or this decade, as they continue to trample on voting rights. Might I say not of Democrats, not of Republicans, but of mm -hmm. all Texans, Texans of all stripes. I mean, I, in my closing speech today, I said, help me preserve the votes of Texas Republicans. Help me preserve the votes of Texas Democrats and everybody else in between. Because this should not be a partisan issue. Yeah. You know, my parents are immigrants to this country. And we think this is the greatest country in the world. And uh, we're very proud that we still have this precious right to vote. A lot of places around the world, people don't have it. But we sure as hell are going to fight all night like we did last night. We're going to fight. We're going to make some good trouble on bills that seek to curtail these rights. And uh, we have to live up to the best ideals of this country, and we're not doing it here in Texas. funny if it weren't so serious they, they, they literally not a single republican voted in favor of this plan and they are literally taking credit for this if they were in a in a college they would be caught out for uh, for academic dishonesty uh, but i guess there's no such thing in congress Yes, I mean, when is the... Uh, Hang on a second. The... I, I, I thought I wasn't be able to hear... There we go. We got you. We got you. Go yeah, ahead. Uh, Sorry, we didn't hear the beginning of that, Lieutenant Governor. Sure. I mean, when has the Republican caucus ever let the, telling the truth get in the way of, of reality? I mean, it's like th this is the group that's claimed that there was massive voter fraud. Joe Biden, it was rigged for Joe Biden. But when they're on the same ballot, well, the voters love me. I mean, there wasn't any fraud in, in, in my race. So... I mean, their estrangement from the truth continues, but it's hardly surprising. So what does is, what is success look like on this front? Because if the American Rescue Plan and the American Jobs Plan and the American Family Plan, which are just basically large government uh, interventions into the economy that some of us think is, is the right thing to do, if they work fundamentally, uh, does 
Joe Biden? Do Democrats, do people like you um, ultimately reap the benefits for it? Or, or do people who put this on their resume or their first 100 days report card um, benefit from the fact that they, they fool people into thinking that they were responsible for it? We're all going to benefit from things like the American risk. And I mean, that, that's, that's obvious. Uh, communities are no stronger than the weakest family. And cities are no stronger than the, the weakest community within a city. And states are no stronger than the weakest cities in, in, their, uh, in their state. And it just comes down to providing the resources America needs to, to get through and get past this pandemic. And, you know, a question was put to me earlier. It's like, well, what, what's the midterms going to look like? It's like, well, if it's running on policies that the kind that Joe Biden has already passed and put forward, then, then I should be so lucky. That's going to be the climate that we're going to find ourselves in in the midterm. You know, everyone knows that this is the kind of intervention that's needed. And when the Republicans will willingly campaign and tout the success that they actively voted against and tried to stop, it tells you you're heading in the right direction and doing the right things. So there's the concept of having discussions on policy uh, in the midterms. There's also the issue of the number of Republicans uh, who have not accepted the outcome of this election and continue to fan uh, this delusion of, of Donald Trump's and, and the stuff that's going on in a number of state houses and the recount going on in Arizona. There's a, a, a public radio station in Harrisburg, WTIF, that has uh, a, a story that they are telling listeners. I want to just read to, uh, to our viewers what it says. As part of WTIF, ITF's commitment to factual reporting. We will use language in our reporting to show how elected officials' actions are connected to the election fraud lie and the insurrection. We are not taking this approach lightly and will apply it to lawmakers who took at least one of these actions. Signed on to a Texas lawsuit aimed at invalidating Pennsylvania's election. Signed on to a state house or state senate letter urging congressional representatives to object to or delay certification and voted against certification. Do you think that kind of thing works to to, to bust up the big lie <laughs> I, I sure it, it's the, something that we have to push against i mean the bottom line is is this everyone knows there was no voter fraud everyone knows that in pennsylvania we've had a total of four or five documented cases of voter fraud out of nearly seven million ballots cast donald trump owned the dead mother vote in pennsylvania and he got a hundred percent of it but the truth of the matter is they're going to keep telling these these kind of lies, and they're going to keep trying to pass legislation that, that decreases the access to, access to the polls in Republican-controlled states. They can't do that in Pennsylvania, so all they can do is amplify the propaganda of the big lie, as I mentioned earlier, claiming that we rigged it for Joe Biden, but we kept our Republican members of our congressional delegation around because they're just such swell guys. I mean, that's how they're going to continue to play it, because that's the only way they can play it. Does this strike you as odd? Because, uh, you know, in, in places like rural Pennsylvania, there could in some quarters be an argument for old-fashioned ideological conservatism in some quarters. Today's Republicans are not making that argument at all. The few that still make it are retiring from politics. But does that strike you as odd that that's the best argument Republicans have right now? I mean, no, because it's all they've got. I mean, like, to your point, I mean, they've given up on traditional, the, the, the William Buckley kind of, traditional George Will conservatism. It's its just how many, how many crazy things can we say? How many lies can we tell? 
and and we've continued to, to to get away with it. And you know, you look at the numbers of the number of Republicans that believe there was election fraud. I don't think they actually believe that there was election fraud. I just think it's a protest belief. But this idea that you can't traffic in reality, you traffic in fantasy. And they have entire media ecosystems where you can live and not be challenged on any of that. And then until they're actually sued, do they actually acknowledge that that uh, they, in fact, you know, like, you know, take me seriously? That, that wasn't, you know, how could anyone take me seriously? And they have to end up apologizing to Dominion and, and these other uh, entities that they've smeared. I'm going to be talking to Texas State uh, Representative Rafael Anchia next. Uh, you, you've, you've claimed the reward, right, from the, uh, the lieutenant governor of Texas offered money if anybody found voter fraud, and you did find four or five cases in Pennsylvania. I take it you didn't get your money. I'd have heard if you did, right? No, I, I, we're still waiting for my handsome reward for, for discovering voter fraud. But I guess they, the, the voter fraud that, of course, that they really wanted was the Democratic voter fraud for Joe Biden, which we didn't have any in Pennsylvania. But, uh, yes, yeah, so I'm still waiting on my hands for award. If you can get Deadbeat Dan to pay up, I mean, that would be uh, outstanding. We would thank you. But uh, regardless, uh, I don't anticipate them ever playing it straight up uh, in, the, in the future because the facts are never on their side, from the pandemic to the relief packages that we've passed to the actual in election integrity. Hey, thanks for watching our YouTube channel.